0: Hey, welcome back to Textual Healing. This is Mallory Smart. Thanks for tuning in to another episode, because this time we're going to go full tilt with Scott Mitchell May. But before we get into that, I'd like to back up and tell you a little bit more about Textual Healing, if you haven't already heard this before. It is a weekly podcast that interviews writers about music, books, genres that drive them, and other fun facts. Tangents are... Always expected. If you want to support the show, follow us on Twitter at Pod Healing, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or subscribe on Spotify. I know it sounds pointless, but it really does help give the writers a platform to speak about who they really are and what influences their writing. People like today's guest, Scott. Scott has been on the show before and therefore needs little introduction, but to get some people up to speed, He's a writer living in Madison, Wisconsin, who has been published by several notable literary magazines like Had, Rejection Letters, and of course, Maudlin House. But none of that is what he's here to talk about today. Instead, he's here to discuss his latest book, Breakneck, or It Happened Once in America. Not wanting to destroy the plot myself, I'm going to hand things over to Scott.
1: Hey there, can you hear me?
0: Oh, hey, sorry. I was like on Spotify listening to Christianity is stupid and I wasn't paying attention to the clean feed thing.
1: <laughs> no, that's totally cool. I th- I threw that on the playlist cuz uh I thought it fit for the book, but also because um I mentioned it in the last podcast and I was like this this song's actually more like of a downer than the name implies. <laughs>
0: You know, honestly, like it, it was kind of maybe I just like it, it gets you in a trance. I, I really didn't get like down. I was just like, yeah, yeah, I feel you. Okay, the entire time. Yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly. It's it's like uh, a negative lands like that where you're like listening to them, and like 20 minutes will pass, and you'll be like, I'm feeling something odd, and I don't know why. Like maybe it's these weirdos.
0: I just keep imagining putting that on repeat. And reading Breakneck, <laughs> I think it could set the mood. Yeah,
1: it, it sets. I think it does set the mood for the novel. Quite, uh, quite great. And
0: the fun part about this song is that, like, most people probably wouldn't even realize it's on repeat. Like for a very long time, they'd just be like, "Wow, this is a really long song."
1: Yeah, it's like, it just keeps going. It just keeps going. And the funny thing about that song and, like, the way Negative Land sort of works is, like, I guess they found a record of, like, an evangelical preacher saying these phrases during, like, a speech of some sort, and they just chopped it up and made it that song. So, you know, you can imagine what the original, like, sermon was like.
0: I mean, I would love to hear that. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's like, uh, what was, like, was was he trying to make a point of, like, these are the bad things that people will try to tell you, or, like, I don't know. But I remember hearing that song for the first time and being like, wow, this has a really dark tone, and it's kind of catchy. And then the refrain is, like, give up.
0: (laughs) You know, like, it doesn't have just, like, it makes me think of, like, you remember those, like, kind of post-apocalyptic movies that came out in the 90s? yes it kind of gave that vibe a little bit
1: yes I could, like, like the uh, see them all
0: like leather clad and big just on motorcycles in some weird fucked up universe and that's just going on in the background
1: a hundred a hundred percent a hundred percent where it's like we are definitely doing a thing here <laughs> and you will know exactly what the thing we're doing is
0: like now i just want to play that i'm just gonna play that on repeat at like the next like family function and see if they realize I'm playing more than one like just one song
1: yeah and for, for real if you ever get a chance or ever feel like it uh, that's from an album called uh, Escape from Noise and the whole album is just like as kind of bonkers as, as that song is and it features like a I, I think they actually like got Jello Biafra to do like some spoken word on some stuff so it's actually a pretty cool album
0: I mean, I usually pride myself on knowing a lot of these kind of bands, but I've never heard of this, uh, Negative Land.
1: Oh, yeah, Negative Land is, yeah, they're one of those sort of art house collective kind of cropped up in the 80s through the 90s type of bands, and their whole deal was, like, just illegally taking shit. Like, (laughs) we're going to just blatantly take U2's music and remix it and then release an album called the letter U and the number two on the same day a U2 album is supposed to drop. Like, that was, like, their whole thing.
0: They believe in plagiarism as an art form.
1: They really do. Like, they're—it's they're, it's funny, but, like, I, I will quote Negative Land in written stuff because I'm like, oh, man, it would be so awesome if I got sued by Negative Land for stealing art. Like, the that irony. would be so cool.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. The irony is too postmodern for me to resist.
0: But you know what? I mean, no one would know— <laughs>
1: No, and that's the other thing it 's like who would who would know a negative land quote I guess
0: like as I said i I know a lot of music, and I was just like, "Whoa, this band is so like it 's getting me into a trance I'm in some like kind of mental state. Who are they?
1: Yeah, and they released an album called Dyspepsid where they basically took Pepsi and Coke commercials and just like chopped them up and made this like really discordant album. And someone put it on in the kitchen I was working in for a while, and I remember it was like two hours into the shift, when I was like, I think I'm going insane. (laughs) Like, I'm pretty sure I have gone around a bend, and I've gone completely insane. Because it's just like that kind of music where you're exactly right, where you don't kind of understand where it begins and ends, and then two hours pass, and you're like, I feel anxious and weird.
0: I am totally... Yeah, I, I'm listening to this shit. I'm adding uh, dyspepsy to my playlist. Hell yes. I'm listening to these guys. Yeah,
1: I, I have to suffer with the knowledge that negative land exists, and it's just catchy enough to keep you going into insanity, so you should too. That's my that's my overall, uh, overarching message for today.
0: I, I just want everybody to listen to that on repeat while reading your book. I'm going to do that again. Like, I'm just going to reread your book and play this over and over, see if it really, like, changes the mood or
1: not. <laughs> well, I did think it fit pretty well with the novel, and I was like, I think I'll make a playlist for Breakneck. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to throw this on there. <laughs> this this fits.
0: What do you think on your playlist fits the most?
1: Oh, the Bad Religion stuff, I think, kind of works pretty, pretty well. The... Uh, uh, go to hell with Superman and die like a champion. <laughs> you know that refrain from that bad religion song I think fits really well. I think country death song fits fits really really well um just because you know a lot of it is grappling with sort of futility and faith and and like just ironies on on levels like that seem too big to deal with, you know. <laughs>
0: So, before we go further, I know who you are. Everyone should know who you are, but how about you introduce yourself again?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I'm Scott Mitchell May. Uh, I write novels and short fiction. That's pretty much my thing. And, uh, yeah, I I have a a couple novels coming out in the next year, one coming out fairly soon or will have already been out uh, by the time this airs uh, called Breakneck. And, uh, yeah, that's... That's pretty much what I do. I'm never sure how many people actually know who I am in the indie lit scene, which might seem weird, but I don't ever feel like I'm, like, that writer who's like, oh, yeah, everyone knows him, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, I would assume textual healing listeners would know you, hopefully, since you've been on the show already. There seems to be a weird trend, um... The last episode was a new person, but prior to that was someone's second episode, and I just did someone else's second episode, and now you have a second episode.
1: (laughs) We're getting the repeats, and I I love it.
0: Yeah, it's just kind of like, come on down. Let's reintroduce you for all your new books.
1: (laughs) Come come on back with what you've been up to lately. Well, I feel like my year uh as a writer has been completely sort of weird and bonkers
0: i feel like the year in the literary community has been pretty bonkers
1: things just keep happening it's so weird
0: i mean it's a thing where like i don't know my fiance for some reason he doesn't even pay attention to the lit world but like he'll wake up earlier than me and he's like did you know about this press and I was just like, what happened to the press? And he's just like, it's closing now. And I'm like, how many are?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's got to be the
0: scandals. And it's like, whoa, I hope Malden House oh. never does that. I hope we never like become yeah. that juicy gossip.
1: Well, it's it's funny because it does seem like there is like a bit of a, a cycle with with that, where it's like something kind of blows up. And then implodes, and then something else fills that void. And it seems like with Indie Lit, it's kind of stuck in a cyclical pattern like that. And I don't know if it's a product of, like, you know, you're just someone who wants to do something fun, and next thing you know, it's running sort of out of control and getting bigger than you thought it would, and you don't know how to deal. So it just sort of falls under the weight of itself because, I mean, there's probably a reason why publishing houses, doing thousands of books, have a team to do those things. Um, you know, so it, it is it is definitely definitely very strange.
0: I mean, as a publisher, and I'm not pointing out anyone who does this, but I do follow certain presses, and I have seen them implode, and I'm predicting a couple other ones will implode before the end of the year. I could be wrong, but... I could see on their Twitter, like, what they're doing, what they're saying, what they're planning. And I'm just like, Mm-mm, they're not going to make it. They are taking on way too much.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, think about being a one-person show, right? Like, you know, we talk a lot about the prevalence of flash fiction uh, in the indie-lit scene and how that's sort of kind of taken over and dominated things. But if you're just starting a press, like, I was thinking about it, like, oh yeah you know you could start a little small online magazine wouldn't that be fun but then you think about not having like other people involved and it's like even if you get a hundred submissions at a thousand words that's a lot of stuff to read through that's a lot of that's a full-time job just to get through submissions so I honestly don't know how people sort of keep it up as long as they as long as they do
0: I mean, I'll admit this just because I had to admit it to some of my authors in Philadelphia. Malden House is mainly me. (laughs) So I do all the manuscripts and I do all the online stuff.
1: Yeah. So I think like the the main takeaway needs to be like everyone just sort of needs to be patient with themselves and also everyone else, because like no one's it's funny in the space we sort of occupy. It's not like people are, you know, just raking in hundreds of thousands of dollars on this stuff it's all sort of you know a labor of love and you make what you can where you can but mostly you just want to see cool stuff out there and the voices that aren't getting published by major places have a have a home that sort of thing um but yeah it gets uh it gets very fraught very quickly
0: you know i will say about like not raking in thousands of dollars and everything i wish more authors understood that because i talked to a lot of them And they have these very lofty expectations that, like, they're going to be the ones that hit it. And it's like, you are in the wrong scene. Like, no.
1: Well, yeah. And and I think I consider myself kind of fortunate in a way where it's like, oh, man, you know, I dropped out of high school in, you know, the first semester of my senior year. Took me a while to get back on track. Like, I got into college when I was, like, 24, 25. Got my first, like actual career job when i was like 28 somewhere in that neighborhood where it's like oh i have a salary and some health benefits and and things like that to where it was like you know by the time i was considering writing fiction and publishing fiction it was never one of those like things in my mind of like oh this is going to be my ticket to stability this is going to be my ticket to security just because You know, I had spent a decade doing, you know, the line dog cook thing, trying my hardest to earn a sit-down job. You know what I mean? So that by the time I got there, it was like, okay, this seems like a fun thing I've always wanted to do because I'm a literary guy. Books are the only thing I've ever enjoyed. Writing's the only thing I've ever been, like, intrinsically good at. So it always seemed like, you know... Hey, if it happens, it happens. I always consider it like, you, you know, you buy that lottery ticket for the, for the like oh,
0: I love doing quarter billion
1: way. yeah yeah you know you buy that lottery ticket with a quarter billion dollar lottery like you know you're probably not gonna win but it doesn't in hurt. the back of your mind it doesn't hurt and in the back of your mind it's super fun to think about the what ifs like that
0: Nicholas but Cage especially with be. yeah
1: ex- exactly but especially with like indie writing and stuff it's like it it is if if you hit and actually make that jump good for you but it 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 can't be the strategy because it's just not realistic in this modern sort of publishing age we live in I don't think no
0: I mean as I said I also see them comparing themselves to a lot of writers as well and I think that's really a big mistake
1: yes I I I I would agree I would I would 100% agree with that in the sense of like you just never know. Like, like I said, I'm ne- I'm never I'm not aware of like how many people read a story I publish, how many people will end up buying my novel. I hope people will. Be. I
0: like just kind of like not let it like get go to your head at all and be like, how many people are reading it and stuff. Like, it's yeah, not fun.
1: Yeah, like I, I hope people will, but at the end of the day, that's I, I I have to put that in a column of stuff I can't control because. Mostly, I'm an anxious dude, right? So, like, there's things there's things that I, I know I can spin out anxiety wise on. Definitely, the writing aspect of it is something I take very very seriously. But that's something I can, can I can control. I can have some sort of uh, grip around. But the reception of it, that sort of thing, you're you're never going to be able to really know, and you're never going to be able to really know if something's just building momentum. And, you know, it's your writing or it's your personality or it's a combination of both or it's a combination of how you present yourself. There's so many X factors that to actually focus on that aspect of it, you'll you'll very quickly drive yourself insane. I kind of feel like. And
0: then also you have to remember that you're counting on a third party as well. The press. Yeah. So like, yeah, 100 percent, like cycle of like a lot of things you can't control. But, no, I get you with the yeah, anxiety, it, definitely.
1: Oh, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, even to the, like, right now, you know, we're talking where you're basically a week out from when my novel's uh, going to drop. And, you know, I, I'm i already feeling nervous about it. Oh,
0: really? But at
1: the same time, well, yeah, because, you know, you it's just, it's like it goes out and then people get to read it. And then, you know, who knows what happens after that. But I just have to kind of keep reminding myself, like, you know, they're not really in a conversation with me or if the book goes or doesn't go, it's not really a reflection on me. It's more just this is the time and the place this thing was released. This is the time and the place where I wrote it. And these were the things that were on my mind. And if people connect with it, fine. If they don't, that's cool, too. I know one thing. An editor at a press dug it enough to put it out three people dug it enough to write blurbs about it. And that yeah. has to be good enough for, well, that has to be good enough. You know what I mean? Definitely. When you put something out, you know,
0: I was going to say you're a pretty successful author, whether you want to admit it or not. So,
1: well, I, I will, I will take that. I will take that. And, and the reason being is because like, I do recognize, like I've published a lot of short fiction and right. I have this and a few other things coming out, uh, which make me feel really, really good, and that's where I think you know that's the that all falls into stuff like yeah i can can I can control that to an extent i can I can deal with that to an extent because you know when you pitch something and someone accepts it, like that has to be like that is where your good feeling on what you've produce sort of has to live because if it doesn't live there, it's certainly not going to live out in the greater wider world because there's just too much stuff being put out too often on too many platforms and too many mediums. For an indie book to even break on something, uh, break on something of a a moderately successful level is, is a minor miracle, you know?
0: I mean, like, I have two things I would say with that is, one, I don't think a lot of people know what a successful book uh, release really looks like these days. Yeah. And two... I was going to say, I don't know if you do this, but I do it, where every time I release something, I kind of just kind of put myself back into my first acceptance that I ever got.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. How? It's it's funny.
0: I seriously remember the very first time and I was like, oh, my God, I'm a writer.
1: I know. and, And like you kind of get numb to it. You know, if you get a lot of short stories and stuff out there, you can get numb to that acceptance. But every time I get one, I try. I think back to 2019 when I got my first my first acceptance for anything, and it's like how I celebrated. How I remember exactly where I was. I was in my car. I got home from my commute. I checked my phone as I put it in park because I'm a millennial, and that's what we do. And I saw the email. You put
0: cars in park
1: put cars in park and immediately check our phone <laughs> and be like, well, what's my email doing? <laughs> Whatever. And I saw the email. I remember running up the driveway and, and telling my wife, like, I got an acceptance for a short story. This is amazing. Like, and just be and how happy I was in that. So I try to, you're exactly right. You got to hold on to, to that stuff. Cause that honestly, in this writing life, that's as good as it gets. It really is.
0: I recently cleared out a storage lacquer, That I've had for way too long, that we keep saying that we were gonna clear out, like for years, and we finally did. And I actually found uh, the original copy of my first book that I had worked out on my typewriter. So I just keep that, like, on my desk at all times, so I could be like, this piece of shit. Somebody actually published this piece of shit. And I remember, like, handing over this really, really bad manuscript. So, yeah,
1: oh man, you know what my wife uh, did for me is she took the cover art for that first short story acceptance uh, from Storgie, uh, the idea of dogs, and uh, sent off for one of those like wrap around small pictures. you know what I mean?
0: Like Aww. it's kind of like
1: a frame thing, but with no frame. So it's like wrapped around a, a frame and it's like mm-hmm. the artwork, the date, the name, like exactly how it appeared on the website. And like, it's above like where I get changed every morning. So I'll, every morning I look up and I see like August, uh, you know, whatever it was, is like August 19th, 2019, the idea of dogs, Storgy, and then the, you know, the artwork for it. And that's how I basically wake up every morning. So it is, it's like a good reminder of like. This is this is what it's about.
0: Exactly. But yet we always feel the anxiety no matter what.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, you do and it's unavoidable and it's like you put you put stuff out there, you submit stuff and then you wait and then you can trick yourself and say, "Well, they've had it for 5 months. Someone must be doing." So. You know what I mean? But in reality, you know how it is. It's just like, "Oh, they haven't gotten to it yet." <laughs> And, it's, and it just becomes it, it becomes uh, a thing of, like, maybe it will or maybe it won't. And you just kind of have to get really cool with either one, you know?
0: I mean, when it comes down to it, I mean, didn't you submit something to Malden House that I didn't get around to reading and then we did a whole podcast about it?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was my short story <laughs> collection.
0: <laughs> but and I ended up loving it, too, when yeah. you, like, sent it to me. I was like, this is really great. Then I was like... Oh, fuck, I could have published it.
1: But I mean, that's 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 how it goes. I mean, you can't ever fault anyone for any of it, because at the end of the day and even I feel like with agents, big publishers, it's just a bunch of people trying to keep their heads above the deluge of writers and their dreams, you know, and it's an unfair position for everybody.
0: Honestly, I think the worst person it would have to be would be the agent. Wow. That feels like it would have to be like a bit of a babysitting task.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean I, I had an agent for oh probably two and a half years or so. And it it, it 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 I do not envy them their position because it probably does become like that because, you know, while you may feel like, Hey, my novel is ready to go. They also have a, a few other clients, at least other pressures going on, and you know you, you kind of have to, you know, you, you kind of have to be egoless almost in just saying like it's either going to go or it isn't. It's either going this relationship's either going to work out or it isn't. And I think writers have to be really honest with themselves in assessing those kind of relationships when they're not working or at least not working in a way that you think they should be working. And having a real honest conversation with themselves and saying, "Okay, what do I need to do here and how do I need to move forward? And when I started having those honest conversations with myself is when sort of everything kind of opened up for me and the possibilities of what I could do with the work I'd already produced sort of opened up for me.
0: So would you recommend getting an agent to other people or...? Do you prefer just kind of going solo kind of um, or control yourself?
1: Yeah, I, I, here's what I would recommend to people. Give it a shot. You know what I mean? Like, send your submissions out to agents, but, you know, be honest with yourself on the kind of feedback you're getting. Silence is a feedback. Um, <laughs> it, it, I mean, it, it, not it,
0: always, though. But not,
1: yeah. not always, but uh, sometimes it is. And also be willing to assess your situation, you know? So like for me personally, um, I wanted to go after the agency side of things because at the time I felt like that's just what you did. And then when I got my agent, uh, it it was a really cool learning experience in like, okay, this is how this process works. And then when circumstances sort of beyond anyone's control, like... The lead agent at our agency suddenly died and then another agent kind of left and so my agent who was diligently working all of a sudden found themselves very overburdened it becomes a very scary sort of situation for an author who's thinking what am I going to you know what does this mean for me or what am I going to do You also have to be very honest with yourself of like, okay, this situation's now changed and there is safety, I guess, and security in what I'm doing, but ultimately, do I believe it's going to lead to where I want to go And then you sort of make your decision based on based on that calculus, I guess. So I would say, yeah, go for an agent, but also don't put your eggs in one basket. And there's no rule that says you can't submit to agents and indie presses at the same time, because guess what? They're kind of working in different pools anyway. No agent's going to be like, oh, gee, I can't I can't take you on because you submitted to X independent literary press who I, you know, who I don't have a relationship with, you know.
0: Yeah, you're not cheating on them.
1: No, no. And if an agent was like, oh, gee, you, you submitted to Maudlin House, and now I'm not going to take on your book, well, do you want that agent anyway, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. If you were to ever tell me an agent was like that, I actually would do nothing about it because I'm too shy of a person. But I'd be like, fuck agents inside.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and the bottom line is, though, like publishing on the macro level is constricting. Like they're the business is... It's not what it was in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. They're they're not taking flyers anymore. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how else to put it, but it's like they want things that they know fit a certain thing they that is going to sell. And if your thing is a little too weird to be mainstream and a little too mainstream to be truly avant-garde, you're going to be a tweener, and it's going to be hard to, to find someone to take that on, you know?
0: I mean, I spoke to an agent, um, it was just more of a casual discussion, mm-hmm. just because, I don't know, I, I was just, like, wondering, like, what it would be like, I've never really actually pursued it, but I, she was very much saying that, like, a big thing they look for, not just with marketability, is, do you think that your book could ever be, like, turned into a mini series or, like, have a short, like, you know... Amazon or Netflix run.
1: Yeah, can we do eight episodes of this on Netflix? Exactly. Funnily enough, I think Breakneck could. Honestly.
0: I was going to say we're going through a bit of a horror boom. So yeah. I can, you know, get anxiety press on that shit.
1: Right? Like, I don't know. I think, I think Breakneck could. You got detectives. You got corrupt politicians. You got weirdo body horror. I think we could do it.
0: I'll call up uh, David Cronenberg right now.
1: Yeah, no. I think I'll have to. I think I'll have to like Google that dude's number.
0: <laughs> I mean, of all directors in the world, I think he actually would be pretty approachable. So
1: there you go, there you go.
0: Like he's your guy, maybe, or David Lynch, but David Lynch kind of scares the shit out of me, even though I love him.
1: Oh yeah, I I took on this project of trying to watch every David Lynch movie like this winter. And, uh, it was, it it was a lot of fun actually, Uh, but oddly enough, like you can't find wild at heart streaming. So I'm a very, like, once I get into like a set plan, if something throws it off, then I just completely stop doing it. So like, once I started like not being able to find certain David Lynch movies that I could just either rent for streaming or just easily find, it was like, I gotta go like down to the library and get a laser disc print like a laser disc player this is this is weird
0: okay that's pretty fucking hilarious but that's my favorite part um i live directly across the street from a library (laughs) so it works out for me I, i i use my xbox or my fiance's xbox i don't really do anything else with it but yeah if they have it here or I could just get it through any other library, or just request it. So,
1: yeah. Well, oddly enough, my favorite David Lynch uh, movie is uh, *Fire Walk with Me*.
0: Oh, let's be best friends.
1: *Fire Walk with Me* I think is a perfect horror movie. I really do, and I think it was um, David Lynch's. Uh, yeah, and, and I'm not a big like director movie buff kind of guy, but as far as I'm concerned. You know, people were, like, the big critique in what David Lynch was doing in Twin Peaks was, like, get to the point. Why is Laura dead? Who killed her? You know, solve the thing. Do the thing. You know, they were always pushing him to, like, make it more formulaic. And I think Fire Walk with me was him just holding up both his middle fingers and going, like, you want to see what the deal with Laura Palmer is? This is the deal with Laura Palmer. And it's going to make you very uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> And it, and it has, like, the, those final lines, like, towards the end are some of the most horrific lines I think I've ever been put on film. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Oh,
0: God, what are the final lines? Oh, yeah. it
1: was like, um, I thought you knew yes, it I was knew me. It. <laughs> I thought you knew it was me. I think is what really got me. was when uh, yeah. Leland uh, finds her in the boxcar, and she's tied up. And uh, right before that is the the other very, very horrific line when she says, don't tie me up. And the big fat Mm -hmm. guy is doing his thing. And then the I thought you knew it was me is like, oh, man. I don't know if I can. I I watched that movie like six months ago. I don't know if I could watch it again for like another year.
0: I adore that film so much. And I think it's so funny. I would say prior to uh, Twin Peaks, The Return, most people always were saying that like it was his worst movie, and I could not believe that I didn't. Did get they watch it. Dune? And, okay, I'm gonna pretend that you didn't just shit talk Dune, but
1: no, Dune's Dune's great if you if you if you watch it through a lens of like kind of pure sci fi camp. You know what I mean? Oh,
0: you just gotta like totally forget that it's based off of the novel Dune. As exactly,
1: well. it, exactly. It's like, it, like the the physical effect makeup is like kind of originally Mad Maxi kind of stuff, you know, with like the pustules and things like that. So, it's not that like I don't like Dune, but it's David Lynch. It's very kind it's of David cam- Lynch. It's very kind of campy David Lynch sci-fi, you know. So it's it's aesthetically different.
0: It's a movie that makes you think. Thank God they didn't give Return of the Jedi to
1: him. <laughs> A little bit, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, they really did, almost.
1: <laughs> I did not but, know that. Yeah. That I would love to. Actually, I might want to live in that universe where David Lynch did Return of the Jedi.
0: Okay, it's hilarious because he's the one that passed. Like, whoa, we came that close.
1: That's, that's really, really funny.
0: <laughs> but no, I would say it's so weird. Apparently, our generation is the shift. Uh, that suddenly likes firewalk With Me. Gen X really isn't for it at all, but we love
1: it. Well, Gen X had... Gen X really grew up... Gen X was in that perfect age group where Twin Peaks was airing on network television. You know, so they they, they owned that series as their own, and then Fire Walk With Me was sort of like a a complete tonal shift on that series, so I can see the... I could see the critique from that, that point, but honestly, Fire Walk With Me was the first David Lynch movie I ever saw when I was like 17 or 18, somewhere in that neighborhood in like, oh, 2000 or 2001, somewhere, somewhere in there. So it was like, that was my introduction to David Lynch.
0: I feel like that's a question you should ask everybody. Like, what was your first David Lynch? And that's how you get to know them.
1: Yeah, for me it was it was Fire walk with Me, and then I didn't watch another David Lynch film until this year uh, when I watched. Uh, I started with Eraserhead.
0: I would say my first was Eraserhead. Watched it during a sleepover, and I was like, I like this guy.
1: Yeah, this is good stuff. I like the lady with the weird face in the radiator. That's when I knew <laughs> I was like, I was into this movie. I was like, who is this weird dancing chick in this radiator? I don't know what's going on, but I'm I'm into it.
0: I mean, you wouldn't think that, like, a bunch of 16-year-olds that had a sleepover would turn on a racer head, but, yeah, that happened, and we were all like, this is very interesting, and that's how you know that I was in a nerdy group
1: in high school. <laughs> yeah, we... Uh, I'm trying to think of the movie. Uh, we didn't watch... Uh, yeah, we didn't get together and watch a lot of movies. It was more of uh, King Cobra 40s. that was, <laughs> King Cobra 40s and Loud Punk Rock. That was our group. <laughs>
0: I mean I I really hate to say it cuz a lot of people are like you seem really cool and all that but damn I I was pretty wholesome well, in I, high school.
1: I was like the, the I was like the nerdiest of the burnouts I guess cuz like I was like skipping class and and reading Norton's, you know, Shakespeare and things like that like like for the most part I couldn't find people to skip school with me cuz they were like, you know, into doing good. <laughs> but I would skip class and like just read assigned reading or read crazy stuff I've, I found. And then, you know, that would be that would be my my rebellious thing. And then when we'd all get together after school, it, it would be the, the King Cobra 40s and the punk rock.
0: <laughs> See, we did listen to like punk rock and everything in like our basements with each other. But we'd be like drinking Mountain Dew and eating chocolate cake and then we'd be like let's turn on bill and ted like that was my teenage years i couldn't skip because my mom worked at my high school so oh
1: yeah well my high school was so funny it was like i was like in that perfect era for when it got wildly overcrowded so they just couldn't keep track of anybody So like you could just literally walk
0: out. Overly crowded too. But no, I couldn't just walk out because my mom was right there, right at the front door.
1: (laughs) She'd be like, where are you going?
0: And like, it's funny because she was the person. Everyone is just like, yo, Mrs. Smart, Mrs. Smart. Or if it was like around me, they'd be like, Mallory's mom. And everyone's like, she's the coolest person ever. Because she didn't give a fuck if anybody else just walked out. Like, they're like, would you come after me? And she's like, "Nah." They no. don't pay me enough.
1: No, I'm not. I'm not. I, I'm not twisting an ankle because you don't want to get an education.
0: <laughs> yeah, she was just like, they don't pay me enough. If you go out and get anything, feel free to bring it back for me. There you go. Yeah, I was like eyed by everybody. It's just like shit. Everyone knows who I am. It had benefits, but then that would be the big negative.
1: Yeah, I mean. <laughs> When I think back on these experiences and I think back on like uh, you, you know high school and and, and all the stuff that sort of went into that in like the early my early twenties, like it that's the kind of stuff that does sort of stick with you. if you If you are in a creative mindset, that's the stuff that sort of gets baked into to your sort of cake when you're when you're writing or, or doing anything creative, I think. because those are the, those are where like the ruts in your brain get really formed.
0: Oh definitely has any of it broken out in this book?
1: Well, this book is uh this book is is sort of more me dealing with the state of American discourse and the state of American politics, so like With this book, I I wanted something highly satirical, but I also wanted something steeped in a lot of genre, but also highly literary. So it was like the dumb thing I always do, which is make it a lot of everything, uh, but not enough of one thing to make it like, oh yeah, this is definitely a horror book, or oh yeah, this is definitely a noir, or oh yeah, this is definitely just a social satire. But really what this book was, was me sort of coming to grips with my like, you know, 12 years working in politics, like from 2008, starting as an intern, all the way through 2020, uh, ending as like a communications director uh, for a state senator. Like it was me just sort of trying to express the absurdity of where we find our modern American politics. And then also trying to write a really fun sort of, uh Noir Chinatown esque deal set in the Midwest because I don't feel like there's a lot of that stuff in Midwestern cities. You know what I mean?
0: No, you you're definitely right. I feel you.
1: Yeah, like I I you know, why can't Madison have a a hard boiled detective noir set here? Why has it always gotta be New York or San Francisco or LA, you know?
0: Hey, like, we can make it here in Chicago. That ex- would
1: work as well. Exactly. Like, you know, I kind of felt like you get a lot of the um, outsider coming to the Midwest and writing about the Midwest sort of stuff that kind of if it doesn't ring and it's not like it rings insulting, but it doesn't it doesn't ring true to the place. And then you get a lot of the stuff people want to read from the Midwest, which is sort of that like, oh, gee, how about we throw on our little accent and and hop in our John Deere for you? kind of stuff. And, you know, that's just not the Midwest I grew up in either. Like being from Northern Illinois, surrounded by corn, surrounded by that kind of country stuff, but in a city with a college and all of, and all of that, like the Midwest I grew up in was a lot, a lot harsher, was a lot, a lot more anxiety ridden, was a lot more dripping in, in drugs and weird violence for no seeming reason you know what i mean so i kind of wanted to see that put on page in a novel for the midwest
0: yeah i don't think a lot of people realize that within the midwest there are a lot of uh i was gonna say democratic oases i don't know what's the plural to an oasis
1: oasis
0: maybe there are a lot of like democratic slash urban away So I don't think that they know that there are a lot of people like us that come from that fun mixture.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. And if you think about the city, I don't think
0: they know where to like put us either in terms of like writing us as a character.
1: No, I mean, people want to, I mean, it's human nature. People want to put people in these boxes. Right. And the Midwest is, I mean, in Midwest Noir I mean, probably reached its cultural zenith with like Fargo, maybe, for Upper Midwest stuff. And then it's like you know Not those accents. I, I know, and then everyone expects like that's your buddy in the wood chipper, there, eh? Oh, it would be <laughs>
0: like, oh, for fun or whatever. I
1: can't even do the accent. I, I can't even. Yeah, it's like I, every once in a while I hear like the elongated O oh, since I've been up here in in Wisconsin for so long, but. You know, yeah, it's like for most of us, we can't even do that accent. And we just end up talking like, you know, the non-offensive people talk on TV. You know, it's like it's like almost a lack of an accent.
0: I mean, everyone expects a Chicago accent from me. And I I don't know. I I have no accent.
1: Most Midwest
0: people I know don't have accents. You have no accent.
1: No, I don't. I don't think I really have an accent. Like every once in a while, you say like Chicago, and it's like it's a little bit in the a of the word. But no, we're we're a region that's that that kind of doesn't even really make sense. You know what I mean? Because like if you think about the Midwest, it is so varied. Like I grew up in Northern Illinois. If you told me like I was in the same state with somebody who lived in like Southern Illinois, I would say no, I'm really not. <laughs> this is like. It's, like, a whole different thing down there. To me, the Midwest— I would actually,
0: like, do a boundary situation. Like, I would have, like, Chicago and Madison, like, have that, like, whole radius be one state cut off Southern Illinois because that is a whole other place.
1: It is a whole other thing. Like, once you get past, like, Bloomington and—like, Bloomington normal, like, once you get past that, like, sort of line of demarcation— and even people in Central Illinois are are a whole different thing. It, it really is. It's like no. Now you're in the south. Like that's not even a thing anymore.
0: Like you're in an area when they start serving food that you've never heard of,
1: and it's like, oh
0: no, we are not from the same place.
1: No, you know, it's like you don't have a euro plate. I don't. I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, what more is uh, breakneck about?
1: Um. Well. At its core, I think Breakneck is essentially a serial killer novel baked into uh, a larger point about uh, national politics and where I, I, I sort of see see it going. I wanted it to be a set in a near future, but not too far away. I think most of the action takes place in 2034 and 2036. Um but really exploring, like, if we continue down sort of the path we've been on, which is just allowing ourselves to become more entrenched and more fragmented and, and and more enmeshed in our belief that whatever side we're on is with the angels and the other side is with the devils and not to play like a centrist thing, because that's really not who I am. I am I am a Democrat. I work for progressive politicians but at the same time, if we allow our mass communication systems to sort of sell us back our own moral, uh, our own moral impulse to, to do something, but do it in a way that ultimately serves our systems that we already have in place, we're going to end up with a completely sort of out of whack and out of balance and insane politics in our country that's even worse than it is now. So I really wanted to sort of pull that string and be like, all right, and you know, in sixteen, in twenty years, how does that actually look in a country? Like what is our end goal here? If this is our if this is our game plan, what is what are we expecting at the end of it? And that was really the question I started with when I was writing when I was writing Breakneck.
0: Now, obviously you just said that like you worked with government and everything. So I assume you're into history, that could be a big assumption, did you pull anything from American history to, like, you know, with the separationist and everything aspects?
1: Um, Well, yeah, I mean, Reconquista of the American Southwest isn't isn't a novel idea that I I, I came up with. It was something I had stumbled across while I was just, you know, sort of reading articles, as one does, and, and thinking about this idea of what would it look like if someone actually got that movement off the ground in a real way. You know what I mean? If like there was states starting to weigh, because as our politics start to fragment and start to go insane, deals with other neighboring countries, things start looking a little less solid. How does that, how would that actually play out in a pragmatic way knowing sort of the underhanded way our politics sort of works? You know what I mean? So that's where that stuff Sort of came from, and then uh, a lot of the stuff with with the, of course, with like the president and the different uh, politicians in in the book. You know, especially with the the speeches they give when they are on and actually having to do their thing, uh, those are pulled pretty much from speeches and ideas and things we've had to deal with in the past.
0: I love how the president speaks gibberish. That's awesome.
1: <laughs> that was my favorite. Absolutely favorite part to write because it just gave me so much freedom to be like, what if they what if it was just insane and everyone had to just deal with it because everyone was getting what seemingly getting what they wanted. Seemingly, they've made a deal that benefits them. But there really is just a crazy person at the top of all of all things. Like when you think about the Trump era, which is when I was writing a larger basically, I, I speed wrote this book between you know, February, January, February of 2019 and August of 2019, because I knew my son was coming in August. Right. So I was like, all right, I don't know what that's going to look like. I know I'm like 30,000 words into this book. I really want to finish it. So like, I just sort of speed wrote it in that, in that like last year of the Trump administration. And it was like, well, what if it was like this, but even kind of crazier, you know what I mean? Yeah. That
0: definitely checks out.
1: Yeah. Because, uh, you know, one of the things uh, I had in mind is when you're thinking about how societies fall apart, how things sort of crumble, and you can think about the fall of Rome. I mean, it took like 400 years, but we're in a thing, uh, an age where things are accelerated. And I remember a science teacher once told me, like, uh, there's two schools of concepts about the apocalypse, basically. You're going to end up with Mad Max or you're going to end up with Star Trek, right? Like, either the smart people are going to save us. Or we're all going to be murdering each other in S&M gear for the last bit of oil. That's, that's, that's where we're at. And I thought to myself, when I was writing this book, like, okay, cool, but let's assume we're going Mad Max. There's going to be, like, a supremely dumb period before mm. that, right? So I wanted to write about that supremely dumb period.
0: It's the idiocracy period.
1: Yeah, only everybody's a lot more vindictive.
0: True, I was gonna say you definitely get the Mad Max vibes. Original Mad Max, not the one that I hate right now.
1: Is that Fury Road?
0: Yeah, I can't stand that. I like the original ones.
1: The original ones are really, really good. I did like Fury Road for the the for the pure it idea feels that
0: feels like a different movie.
1: You know, it's a completely different movie, and it's like they use thirteen words for the whole story.
0: It's one of those things, like, it would work if it wasn't called Mad Max. Like, if you just gave it an entirely different name, I'd be like, okay, this is a decent movie. But because they called it Mad Max, I just was comparing it to Mad Max the entire time.
1: Well, yeah, and then you have the, you know, you have the expectation going in of a certain thing. hmm
0: But no, I could definitely tell with your playlist that y- you were going down. Let's just say you were going down Fury Road. Scott,
1: I know, <laughs> I know. It's 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 really cool. Uh, I think you're the second person I've spoken to who's actually who's read this book at this point. So this is really kind of cool for me.
0: So, I'm just like looking through it. I I really could see Christianity is stupid, just playing that over and over. But you see bad religion that that those songs being more.
1: Yeah, you know, because I think they're just more frenetic. You know what I mean? They're more uh, kind of punch you in the face. As much as Christianity is stupid is like a clear message of a song. Um, the you know Generator uh, by Bad Religion is, is one of uh, my favorite Bad Religion songs. And it's, uh, you know, just that refrain. It starts off like a rock, like a planet, like a fucking atom bomb. You know, like, and that's what I wanted for this book. I wanted it to start... That's why I named it Breakneck. You know, from the very beginning of this book, I wanted you in the middle of the action. And then at the very end of the book, I wanted you, you know, at the very conclusion of, of that action that was set off in the beginning of the book. And the structure of it, I think, worked particularly well in the way that, like, you know, as far as a thriller or, like, a whodunit goes, it's a, it's a they-done-it. Like, you know who did it, right? You You know who all the bad guys are, who the seemingly good guys are. And then the trick of like the, the, you know, the tension of the book becomes not only the why, but the, how the hell does this thing actually, how the hell does this actually terminate? You know what I mean? Where does this end up and what questions will, will the ending ultimately leave us with? And that became the challenge for me and became the fun of writing this book
0: i was gonna say when i was reading it that that was definitely where i was like what is the resolution gonna be like where are we headed (laughs) but it was really good very satisfying
1: well I'm, I'm, i'm glad to hear that because with a book like this and an ending like it has um you know to me it was a question mark of like i know why i think it's satisfying i know the you know the clear sort of um resolution in in my mind that there is but I'm not sure I'm not sure if I was able to actually make that apparent in anyone else's head.
0: Well, I think it fit in my head, but I'm not always the best example.
1: <laughs> well, and that's the other thing, like circling back to our talk about where, you know, how IndieLit functions and how these these books function, is that it's just amazing to me that you can find publishing houses that are willing to take on these kind of books that aren't a clear one thing and a clear and then they wrote off into the sunset kind of deal. You know what I mean?
0: Oh, definitely. The weirder, the better for some presses. Like, some people want the most far out stuff then some people want, like, the really conventional. Like, I love that there's basically a tiny press for everything.
1: Yeah, and I really dig that, dig that too because, like, a lot of the times I kind of feel like You know, I do live in this world where, like, I'm not so weird as that. People are like, oh, look at that transgressive dude over there doing those transgressive things. But I'm definitely not so mainstream either. Like, I don't... It's like I can't commit to either side of the coin, I guess.
0: I was going to say, this is definitely not the weirdest book I've read in the indie scene.
1: (laughs) No, no. So, like... I, I have a that's why I think I have a hard time like knowing my place in this whole thing because it's like yeah I definitely do not have my foot firmly in, in like I'm, I, I'm too weird to be mainstream and I'm too kind of mainstream to be weird I think
0: that's like you should make that your bio now on Twitter
1: yeah just like I yeah, just uh, no, I'm not uh, <laughs> I I am not committing to anything
0: I mean you know your like latest profile picture it definitely helps.
1: Oh, oh yeah! My son literally did take that with a uh, a Fuji Minimax like mini Polaroid camera.
0: I mean, I, I I just love that it looks like you're offering alcohol to your kid. That's great.
1: Yeah, he was like, hold 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 your beer like this. I did, and he he's three and a half, and he's like, he took the picture, and then I looked, I was like, this this kid's a friggin' genius.
0: Exactly. See. That's good parenting right there. That's how you know that you succeeded.
1: Exactly. Like uh I I I kind of like just indulging like in very fun ways of like you know when your instincts to be like, "Oh, no." to be like, "But maybe, yes. <laughs> see where this goes."
0: I mean, you have to indulge some of their weird thinking at times.
1: Oh, 100%. 100%. And when you do it's awesome because they become like Just pure expressions of, like, super weirdness, especially when they're, like, you know, under the age of six or seven.
0: I mean, it it only gets better. I promise you that. I have 11 nieces and nephews. So I can tell you, like, the older they get, sometimes the weirder they get. And it's so fun to see that happen.
1: Oh, I'm so looking forward to that. I am so looking forward to that.
0: Especially, like, when they start actually getting to that age where they can try and give you the reasoning as to what they're doing.
1: Like, yes that has been oh, my favorite part oh to see like how his mind just like operates and puts things together and he's just like mm-hmm. no that doesn't make sense and you're like why and he's like and then he gives you the reason you're like i can see how you see that doesn't make sense <laughs>
0: <laughs> do you think like your kid will ever grow up and enjoy your books
1: Oh, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's weird because it's like. Or oh, like,
0: do you think they'll be embarrassed? Like, oh, my cool, dad wrote
1: oh, this. Well, you never think your dad's cool. Like, that's just an unattainable goal.
0: <laughs> you know? I mean, you're never going to be like the dad joke dad.
1: Yeah, I probably. Uh, uh, pro- no, probably not. No, probably not. But at the same time, like, whatever, I kind of feel like whatever your thing is, like, as a parent, eventually your kid's going to be like, oh, skateboarding punk rock again jeez <laughs> have you heard kenny loggins really you know i mean it's like whatever it's gonna be you you uh they're gonna rebel at some point that's why like i'm gonna try to be like oh yeah no going to school is lame <laughs> you're gonna rebel <laughs> against that
0: <laughs> i can't wait for like blink 182 to suddenly be like dad rock and stuff like that
1: oh i know it's it's so awesome. well I, I, it's funny like i skate in the morning at the park with Literally, people who are, like, one who works for Google, he's, like, 45. Like, at 8 in the morning at the skate park, it's all professors and and graphic designers in their 40s. It's really funny.
0: I mean, I will say this other thing. The other thing that I live right across from is a skate shop. And it is never anyone who looks under the age of 30. No. And they'll be, like, skating around there and, like, over, like, by Chase Bank. And I'll be like, "I salute you." Yeah, it's yeah. pretty badass. I feel noon, like I'm still
1: in high school. Noon runs around, or comes around, and like the college kids start coming to the park, and I'm like, "This is my cue to leave." You, bo- you, you kids have fun.
0: How old do you think you look?
1: Uh, I know this is
0: like the worst question to ask anybody, but yeah,
1: I get I get aged down a lot. It's really funny, like. When I tell people I'm 40, they're always like, you don't look 40. So I was, I don't know, 35?
0: (laughs) So I took my niece out for her 23rd birthday because her 21st was during the pandemic. And 22, I just kind of forgot about it because I'm a horrible aunt. But 23, I was like, okay, we're going to go out. And she is a Swifty. So there is this like Taylor Swift dance party. Oh, Nice. It was so weird. One, like, it totally was against, like, the fire code. Like, there are way too many people there. There might have been, like, three or four guys at the entire thing out of, like, a couple hundred people. My boyfriend or fiancé was one of them, and he just, like, felt awkward (laughs) the entire time. But, like, I was with her friends and everything, and at one point they're like, so when is your aunt going to show up? And I just had to be like... I'm the ant, that's me. I,
1: that that is me. I am a fish I am the old person here.
0: And like you don't realize that like even you're thinking like you sort of suddenly have that confidence that like the twenty something year old doesn't have where they're like oh I can't make it to the bar no one's listening to me and then suddenly you're like oh all right whatever I'll I'll go do it and you're more assertive and all that shit but yeah yeah you don't expect suddenly that you're gonna be the adult and they're all looking at you at first as like a 20 something year old because you kind of act like it's a still like oh mom, I know skateboarder
1: oh I know that's the, that's the thing like I like I like functionally like the difference between my life now besides like the career stuff the things I have to do but like the things I enjoy and the things I do in like my leisure time it's like no this is this is an 18 year olds kind of deal. Like I broke my ankle in February (laughs) and I was like, Oh, and I didn't even realize it. And I'm like out skating five days later. I didn't know it until like three weeks later. I'm like, you're 40. What are you doing? Like, seriously, what are you doing?
0: See, that's a great way though. Like, did you have to lie about how you hurt your ankle though? Did you have to come up like with an adult reason?
1: Oh no, no, no. One thing I know for sure. My mom was a nurse. Like, Tell your medical practitioner the truth. (laughs) Just (laughs) tell them, like, how much do you drink? This much every day. You know, like, whatever it is, tell them because they will keep you alive. They will fix it. You know, so I was like, oh, no, here's exactly how I did it. I rolled it really bad. I didn't know it was broken. It turned black and blue. It healed itself to, like, 90% within, like, three weeks, but it just won't stop aching. What did I do? Oh, you fractured it. Stay off it for mm. 14 more days. That was it.
0: See, that's got to be the funniest thing, though, when you go into work and, like, everyone's like, what's wrong with your ankle?
1: Oh, yeah. No, I just tell them. <laughs> just <laughs> like, this is this is what I did.
0: And they just <laughs> shake their heads so like millennials.
1: Yeah, they're kind of just like, oh you're, oh, you're crazy. That's okay. But the thing I've kind of realized over the last year is, like, uh, the more you just sort of own your shit, like the more it gets just normalized and people are like, Oh yeah, that's just Scott. That's what he's going to do.
0: Oh, same here. I think most people have accepted that I'm just going to be the strange person and I have no set of rules.
1: Well, yeah. And I mean, that's the thing, like you just sort of learn as life goes on. It's just like, you know, if it makes you feel good and it's not hurting anyone else, then it really, it really probably shouldn't matter.
0: Exactly. I mean, how is your book about serial killers? gonna hurt anyone
1: else <laughs> exactly although I, I I could see like my mom's planning on buying this book and I'm Ooh. kind of fretting about that. there's some, some weird weird stuff in there
0: that's why immediately I was like
1: oh because when you're like writing in your room for like a year and you're like no one's ever gonna buy no one's ever gonna publish this book it's fine and then someone does and you're like well. Can I change the bunker scene a little bit? <laughs> I didn't, obviously, but you know, you don't think about your mom reading the orgy scene in your book. You know, it's just not something that crosses your mind.
0: And then you suddenly start getting the text messages. Be prepared, you'll get
1: those. Exactly, exactly. So I think, uh, yeah, my parents are actually like stoked. I'm like, getting books out there and 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 and, that. and they're like really they're really proud of that but I am kind of scared when my mom does read break
0: Have they like read like the synopsis of what it's about?
1: Uh, she asked me what it's about the other day cuz I says, "Oh, I haven't told anybody when it's coming out in my family." And then finally I like
0: That's a smart. Yeah, idea. like yesterday
1: I was like, "Oh, yeah, it's coming out next Friday." And they're like, "Okay, are you going to send us the link?" I'm like, "Yeah." And she's like, "What's it about?" I'm like, "It's a uh, oh, well, shit, I'll just read it. And I'm like, okay.
0: See, I always enjoy like hearing how people like the actual synopsis you give and then like suddenly how you have to like change it for certain people.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I- exactly. Like for breakneck, like, yeah, I, I've been telling everybody like it's a, you know, it is a noir, it is a horror, it is a thriller, and it's deeply funny, satirical and political. And that's, that's basically been what I've been telling people.
0: You should definitely, when saying funny, be like, it, it's my kind of funny.
1: Yeah, it's it's darkly funny.
0: Yeah. Because you're going to have some people be like, I'm not laughing. What?
1: Like th- this is not funny at all. Like, what is what is your problem?
0: I know. Like, what is in his sick fucking mind? How is this funny?
1: Although I I, I did talk to somebody else outside of myself who, who, who told me it was a funny book. So I have one other person
0: oh, on no, this planet. I agree. Who-
1: who thinks it's funny?
0: But yeah, I I just come from that point where I have a fucked up sense of humor, so it's very easy to make me laugh.
1: Yeah, and the other thing, like with the book, like I kind of wanted it to not be spoilerable. (laughs) You know, like there's things that happen. Yeah, there's things that happen that, like, I guess could be a spoiler, but like I I fail to see how, like, if you disclosed anything about the book, how someone would be like, well, now I don't have to read that. (laughs) Like, because everything's sort of upfront with it, you know?
0: God, I'm just thinking about how much I love the book. Sorry. Like, I had to, like, take a beat and be like, savor it. Good
1: book. I'm I'm really glad uh, that you were willing to read it in advance and willing to provide uh, a blurb for it because I really dig what you do and I really dig Maudlin House and you guys have been always you've been always so great with uh, to me with my short fiction and, and things like that that when i was thinking about sending it to people you were you were on the top of my list and when i got your blurb back i was i was very very touched and very excited to have it because uh i was just excited you read the book and that you dug it
0: oh thank you yeah i love it when like writers from alden house like will suddenly be like i have a book and i'm just like i have to read it if i've like published you before i obviously love your writing that's not to say that I haven't, like, been, oh, I, I'm sorry, I couldn't finish it if they wrote something that I didn't like, but... Yeah. See, that's how you know, like, if I'm just like, oh, I'm really busy, or I, I couldn't finish it, that's how you know, like, I don't want to give you a
1: bad blurb. <laughs> yes. Well, I always, like, like, blurb. like, asking for blurbs is such a fraught thing that, like, I, I probably overdo it in a way, but I always put in there, like, honestly... I don't care if if it's not for you just tell me it's fine like you're not going to hurt my feelings it happens not everything's for everybody so please if at any point you feel like stopping all I ask is that you say you know what i don't think i can provide a, a blurb for this
0: <laughs> see i'm the excuse maker i'm always worried that i could hurt someone's feelings
1: I was thinking about this the other day because I like read an article that was like how to read your bad reviews without, you know, destroying yourself. And I was like, oh, man, people just got to spend a decade in the service industry. <laughs> like, you know, because you'll hear shit about yourself in a kitchen that will make you feel real bad. <laughs> then someone going like I didn't like their plot is like, oh, all right, then. Cool. Have a good day.
0: God, send me that link to that article. I would love to read that. <laughs>
1: How to deal with rejection? Uh, yeah, no, I just I,
0: self-helping.
1: Yeah, well, the thing is with rejection and stuff like you just gotta it's 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 part of it's part of it. It will always be part of it. Like you can't. I mean, yeah, some will sting more than others, but at the end of the day, it's just it's just what it is. It's like trying to worry about the sun falling down. It might happen, I don't know, but worrying about it seems weird. <laughs>
0: It's one of those things where i don 't know i don 't know if it's just because I've been writing so long, but I kind of always start in expecting
1: rejection that is the key. start from a place where you expect them to say no mm-hmm. that's how you that 's how you're happy as a writer because then when they say yes, it feels so good and when they say no, you're like, yeah, that tracks
0: yeah, it's like yeah, it was a long shot, thanks
1: It was a long <laughs> shot anyway. I feel uh, I feel like my expect my expectations in this exchange were met, and now I can walk away feeling okay.
0: I know it's been like thanks for even attempting to read this.
1: All right. And that was the thing. Like I was talking, uh, to, uh, I was exchanging uh, DMs with somebody who was going to uh, query agents and stuff, and I was like, "Yeah, I'll give you my spreadsheets of the agents I found who dig this, or who at least really say they dig this kind of work." And and then I was like telling him like. My philosophy on that, uh, on the whole querying thing is, like, if you can keep in your mind that you're just forcing somebody at, like, Sterling Lord, Literistic to read 10 pages of your shit and be happy with that and just view it as a lottery ticket, then you'll be happy with your querying process. Because at the end of the day, you made some dude or or lady in New York for some big fancy agency read your work.
0: They're all from New York. All of them.
1: All of them all of them and that's really funny with like when you get an agent and they like pitch your book to like little brown and then you get like a letter back from an editor at little brown being like these are the things i like these are things i didn't like it becomes very clear how absurd the whole thing is
0: see i would collect those i would frame those weird rejections well
1: it it, it is just very absurd because it's like Oh man the guy who who edited X novel said he you know liked this but didn't like that about my book in my mind it's like that dude has no business even having my book in front of him like that's just like the mentality i come with so it's like it's not that it doesn't affect me but i just find it kind of hugely funny that this guy had to at least read probably 20 to 40 pages of my book to figure that out
0: see that's why like when you have an agent i would almost say that's like a marriage like, they need to know you.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's a good point. They they have to know, like, what's going to affect you and what's not going to affect you.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's a relationship. I mean, you can't just, like, hop into bed with someone right away and be like, hey, it's going to work.
1: Yeah, because, like, with me, like, honesty never... Honesty will never really affect me in that way. But what will affect me is, like... <clears throat> You know, trying your to...
0: hopes up and shit. Well,
1: and trying to couch things and trying to, like, be like, if not but this, then that. And it's like, no, just, just, what was it? Okay, now let's move forward.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's one of those things where I think writers get stereotyped as very fragile people who can't handle it. And I don't know if that's, like, a good stereotype where, like, most people are, but I could handle it. Like, tell me the truth.
1: Well, yeah, well, I think, too, like... There's, well, it's like, uh, writers are a subset just like any other. So, but I also think they're a subset that's like where a certain kind of person who is probably told at a very young age that they are exceptionally good at a certain thing and then told that over and over again for a very long period of time through probably their early twenties, uh, maybe their mid twenties then starts running into walls of people telling them they're not that they might not be great at that thing, or at least not the thing they've written might not be well, do well for this certain thing. And then that rejection hits really, really hard. You know what I mean? I do have a certain sympathy for that because like I can I can see how that would uh, affect you very, very well. Me personally, I was told I was not very good at a lot of things for a very long period of time. So being told like, no, is not, is, is not, I just don't think it like kind of hits the same.
0: See, I like to refer to that as a gifted children's syndrome. I don't know if they had like the gifted program at your school. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. All they did. of those kids. I, I was a gifted student and they just like shower you with compliments. And they're like, you're such a genius. You read so amazingly. You're like always like five steps ahead of everybody else to the point like when you finally like become an adult, you're like, I'm a fucking god. Like bring it on.
1: I'm a goddamn genius. These I people know. just need to catch on.
0: Like I could read anything and I could write very intellectually. Where's my yeah. book deal?
1: Well, here's the thing with me, is that did happen to me. And it happened I remember very distinctly when it happened to me, having me in the third grade. Uh I was reading just miles beyond, you know what I was supposed to be reading and people were very excited, you know, and writing miles beyond what I was supposed to be writing and people were very excited. And then my ADHD sort of presented in such a way that it was undeniable. Right. But it was also like 1993 or 1994 and people didn't quite understand all of it. So it became very quickly, uh, not about what I can do, but all about what I couldn't do. And then that became my entire educational uh, experience was constantly reinforcing and trying to fix the same things I couldn't do. And what I could do was never really, you know, was never really the focal point because why would it be? Because we're trying to fix these deficits, you know. So I didn't get like – I had that like one little taste of it and then it just like imploded on itself and became very much so like – that doesn't even matter anymore. That doesn't even register. So, like, I kind of consider myself lucky in a way that I wasn't, like, one of those people who were like, hey, no one knew he was ADHD until, you know, later in life. It was like, oh, no, they knew. (laughs) But I never got, like, the over... I never got, like, the uh, showering of compliment kind of deal. Except for that one, like, fleeting moment. And then it very much... So, by the time I got around to, like, actually just doing it myself and figuring it out for myself, like I was already used to like the, you know, sort of the Ferris wheel of, of rejection, the Ferris wheel of, uh, of uncertainty and, uh, um, you know, just not being confident in myself in that way. If that, if that makes any sense.
0: Oh no, it totally does. I would say the shower of compliments, uh, took a break for me when I went to Catholic school for a little bit. Um,
1: Oh, oh yeah. Those, those nuns know how to do it.
0: They'll just be like, you are not special. Especially if you have my personality. No.
1: Yeah. I, I went to a Catholic, a private Catholic college, uh, because, you know, I knew if I was in a 500 person lecture hall, I would, it would not do well for me. So I ended up going to Edgewood College in Madison, uh, which is a great college. I absolutely love it there. They actually don't have a literature tract anymore, which is kind of sad, but that's the tract I was on, was the literature tract. And I had a class in early American lit with Sister Winifred Morgan, which is just a great name for a nun. Like, Sister Wynn. Like, okay. Um you can cast but re- her in
0: Sister Act, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. But I remember sitting in her class, and she, like, did the old school nun thing, and she's like, Mr. May you are not taking notes in my early American Lit class. How do you expect to know what I have said? And I just looked at her and I said, Sister, when you can ask me anything you just said, I will tell you what you just said. But uh, one thing I know I cannot do is take notes and listen to you at the same time. So we're going to have to figure out how to make this work.
0: Yeah, I went to a school where they were the lecture halls, and I... Did not pay attention. I mean, I remember I was taking a history of mental health class. I just turned on Halloween on my computer and I just put my phone out and like just recorded the lecture. And that's just kind of how college was for me.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, by the time I got into college, like I, I was so into doing it because, you know, I'd i been working in the kitchen for so long. that I was just like, I just need I need to have something I can do that's not just going to be feeling like I'm only going to be a line cook or <laughs> not only be a line cook. Cause being a line cook is actually kind of cool, but like, you know, it's not so cool when you're 45 and your knees are going. So I, like, I knew that much. So by the time they told me, all I had to do was read books and then write papers on those books and then take elective classes after my gen eds. Like I was just so into it that like, it was actually like a really cool experience where it's like, Oh, I can read these 27 books this semester and that's going to be awesome. Like, cause that's all I have to do now. Cause I, I barely scraped by on my, my required math class. I got my C in science. I convinced, you know, the French teacher that I'd learned French. And so I'm <laughs> past all the stuff that I need to get past. And now I can take cool stuff I'm actually interested in. And school then became like what I'd wanted when I was in third or fourth grade. I was like, no, now you're just going to focus on literature and you're just going to focus on rhetoric and you're just going to focus on linguistics. And it really is weird. I didn't end up with a Bachelor of Arts in literature. I ended up with a Bachelor of Science in literature because I took so many electives that were in like the actual science of how language is put together. So I had a, I had like a blast doing that stuff. And it was because like, I was taking classes with like five other people. Like I'd be in a class called you know, I think the class was called Black Women's Writers, and it was an amazing class, and I loved it, but it was, like, me and, like, two other people, and it was, it was awesome.
0: See, I love those small classes. I mean, I did a history of women in the Russian Revolution. I shit you not, there were, like, only five other kids in that class. It was awesome.
1: Oh, those, those classes are absolutely amazing. Like, the more esoteric and, like, niche and, like, condensed you find uh, like especially with like a literature class and the smaller it is like that professor's really into that subject like I took Arthurian legends oh, <laughs> and like the dude who I taught Ar- oh dude the dude who, who taught Arthurian legends like that was his jam that dude could tell you anything about the Arthurian cycle about, like, uh, The Green Knight, the earliest, you know, the earliest manuscripts, all the way, you know, through Mallory and then Mists of Avalon, and, like, that was his whole jam. And Like, I think he was, like, tenured forever and finally convinced them to let, actually let him teach a class on it.
0: That's, I was going to say, that's what they, like, put in all that, like, time for, especially if they're older, you're like, oh, okay, they definitely put their hard work in and they just got to make up their own class.
1: Yeah, he's like, no, we are just teaching and studying every cycle of arthur and it was awesome like at the end of the class he's like you can either write a paper or figure something else out and i like made a period specific dish for the class (laughs) that was like my final
0: see that's awesome i love when teachers don't give a fuck about the final too
1: he he was posting like i remember he was posting daily assignments on some board that nobody ever checked and like three months in or like something crazy he was like so no one's done a daily assignment ever so we're just (laughs) gonna drop that (laughs) we were all like we were supposed to
0: (laughs) see i was the procrastinator so like i would get it done like a week later
1: it, yeah, yeah. I, I was I was weirdly actually good about getting papers done. Like, I don't know what it was, but like, I couldn't do that for really anything else. But then when it came to that stuff, I was actually able to like, do like seven ten page papers, you know, within a week and a half or something. Mm-hmm. Like I was able to like, I would spend like just 13 hours in a library one day and like bust out all the final Analysis and just be done with it.
0: See, if you were to meet me in person, you will realize that, like, I distract easily. Very easily.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I always say the only, like, the, yeah, lacks a oh, uh, lacks uh, a teacher who liked to go smoke and drink coffee during exams in French class, and camel lights are the only reason I got through college because i was able to... <laughs> I was able to to get up and move around and 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 do whatever I wanted that way.
0: See, I dig that. Honestly, I feel like the key to me getting through anything in school is that I see. I don't want to say I have a great personality, but I know how to play to other person, other people's personalities very easily.
1: Yeah, I, I get that. I can be a bit of a chameleon in that in that way too, where it's just like oh, what's the vibe we're riding today? Oh, cool, we're going to be lazy. Sweet, let's do that.
0: Exactly. So, like, at all times, like, with professors, like, they'd be like, "Oh, hey, this is Mallory, awesome. And, like, yeah. I, we would, like, just go for, like, coffee or something. Like, I would be friends with my professors.
1: Yeah, I I was always the, I was always, like, since I was always, like, kind of older and, I don't know, I, I would always come on campus and then I would spend, like, you know, the four or five hours on campus, I had to be there. And then I always had to like go to a shift. So I was like, it'd be like oh, I could be here till five. And then I have to go do the closing shift or whatever. So I was like, I never, like, I always feel like I never got connections or networking or any of that stuff out of college. Cause I was always just like, just the guy who showed up, turned in his work, did discussions in class and then left <laughs> and then never joined anything.
0: You just pieced on out of there.
1: Yeah, basically, basically, and I, and I, well, it was always I was like, working full time and at school full time. Then my last two years, I had an internship for like twenty hours a week. So I was like, I just never had time to like actually do the things that like get people, you know, the kind of advancement I guess in the literary world, and it kind of goes forward to today where it's like. I don't know how much, like, I feel like I'm actually in a group in the community of literary writers, I guess.
0: Oh, I'm right there with you. Yeah.
1: Well, when you hear people talk about, like, the the group chat, I'm like, where is the I'm group? I'm
0: never part of the group chat. Where's I the, always hear about the group chat. Where's the, like, the group
1: Ooh. chat? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm yeah. part of, like, two now, I think, because of the, a couple different presses I'm, I'm working with for stuff. But, like, when they're like, oh, yeah, me and, like, three other writers are in this group chat, I'm like, that sounds cool, man. Wait. That's awesome, but like no, I'm I'm the same. I'm like never the person in the group chat.
0: I hear about the group chats. I've never been in
1: one. Yeah, exactly. It's like Oh, awesome, man. I'm glad I'm glad y'all connected in that very human way. I, just, I guess I'm missing something there.
0: I mean, I feel the most I ever get are text messages from other writers, but like they're very just, I don't know, short to the point, whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, I'm always, on. yeah, I would agree with that, where it's always like, like, I always feel like I need a reason to, like, be texting or DMing somebody, you know what I mean? So it's always like me asking a question, then that question getting resolved, and then that being the end of the conversation.
0: (laughs) Basically, I mean, I've spoken, I, I would say that there are only a couple writers that, like, I speak to, and they actually know, like, who I am.
1: yeah. Yeah, I would say I, I probably have like two, two or three that I that I've like probably cultivated a deeper sort of friendship with.
0: I mean, it it's one of those scary things with like writers, especially if like they're online and you don't see them in your daily yeah. life. And it's like, do you translate well via the group chat or text messages, even just on the phone?
1: Oh yeah, no. Oh, yeah, no, I know I don't, I don't translate particularly well <laughs> on the group chat, on the text of the group chat, like, and maybe that's just in my head, but I always, like, read back the stuff, I said, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, you, you're, you're totally a weirdo.
0: Like, I, I censor myself so much, because I always know that, like, if I were to totally let go, people would not get it, always. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I have the, the whole, like, uh, being in politics for so long thing where it's just, like, ingrained in you, like, never write, type anything out. you uh, Attributable to you that you don't want to see printed on the front page of the newspaper.
0: Oh, I'm a leave no receipts person, but yeah. I do have receipts on a lot of other people, so let that <laughs> that's resonate.
1: I that's why I love fiction. Fiction's awesome. It's, like, the perfect barrier <laughs> of, like, no, that's author, dude making stuff up
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know that's fictional
1: yeah that's fictional that's that's in the art world where things are weird not it's not a receipt (laughs) on me personally
0: exactly as long as you have that like page in the beginning where it's like this is a work of fiction not like anybody else you know
1: but yeah but it is like a neat little it, it, it is like a neat little like mental trick you know where it's like you can free yourself up to write what you want in fiction like I I published I think my first like kind of real non-fiction essay piece last month uh you know about buying a jacket <laughs> I think and uh but it's different because it's like you're, you're expressing your actual thoughts, you know, that are attributable to you. That's like your authorial voice is, now this is Scott May talking to you now, you know, and it becomes a very weird thing to think about.
0: See, I, don't, I, I think I would come off as mean if people actually, like, they didn't know my personality, but I started speaking to them in a certain way. But in reality, it's just me being, being very sarcastic.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I get that. I totally get that. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It's like, you need to see me in person, too, to know, like, I'm smiling while I'm saying this to you and stuff like that.
1: Yes, especially if, like, you can be kind of deadpan, you know, which I can be kind of deadpan. of just like, I'm going to say this thing I totally don't believe, and I'm not going to (laughs) smile. It's it's, going to be very weird and awkward. (laughs) But no, I'm joking.
0: I mean... It's like when you're with, like, a group of friends and there's that, like, one weird outsider who doesn't understand who the fuck you are, like, at all. And they're like, you're a pretentious asshole. I don't like you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I I definitely definitely can relate to that.
0: And then, like, if you're, like, that person who suddenly, like, starts talking about your book and everything, then you're more pretentious.
1: And that's a thing, like, I've, yeah, that I kind of struggle with where it's like you start trying to promote the book, and I've been doing more of that online. It's starting to feel more comfortable for me, but then I always back away from it because after a few days of it, you just feel like, you know, yeah, people are just going to mute me (laughs) at this point. (laughs) I would mute me at this point.
0: See, I feel like promote like crazy. Feel free to whore yourself out. You know what? Like, go for it. That's what Twitter's yeah. for, I think. I don't know. No one really explained the platform to me. That's how I use no, it. No.
1: I clearly don't understand it either. Like, like I always... I, I think I'm, like, exceptionally bad at Twitter.
0: I just, like... I know not to write bad things on Twitter because people get angry at you really quickly. Like, if you, if I were to do my sarcastic personality on Twitter, I would not be well thought of
1: in the lit world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that tracks. Yeah, yeah. And I see people, like, really good at it, and it's just like... Uh, no, aren't I can you see jealous why you're... of that? Kind of, where it's like, uh, oh, yeah, you're super just, like, you're built for this. In a way, I'm just not. You know what I mean? It's like... And then I just think it just comes back to one of those, like, column things where it's like, here's the column of stuff I can't control. I, I'm i not super great at Twitter. I'm never going to be super great at Twitter <laughs> My pitch for a story I wrote is like, check out the story I wrote.
0: <laughs> so, who did the cover for your book? Because I really liked it.
1: Oh, Cody from uh, Cody Sexton from Anxiety Press. He did that, I and do. Uh, I, I yeah, I gave him some sort of just like loose guidance. Um, I really liked the movie poster for Chinatown, uh, the French version, and uh, of the poster, and it doesn't look anything like that, but like. You know, just sort of gave him something like Detective noir kind of vibey stuff I was looking for. And we shot it back and forth maybe twice. And it, it turned out really, really well.
0: I take it. It actually really came out well.
1: I think so. I'm really, I'm, I'm just, I'm very excited for the book to get out there. You know, I'm very excited if anyone wants to to buy it and, and certainly read it. Um You know, as far as reception, things like that go, like, I know what I was looking for to get out of the book, and largely I got out of the book what I needed to get out of it, so I just hope, you know, whoever does find their way to reading it either digs it or doesn't, and either way feels something about it at the end of it.
0: I mean, I hope that nobody, like, actually tells you how much they hate it, but... (laughs)
1: I've never had that happen.
0: Um, I, I haven't either, but, like, you always have that feeling, like, it could happen one day.
1: Well, people are just brazen, too. Like, I, it would never occur to me to be like, hey, yeah, no, your book sucked. <laughs> to someone's, like, face, I guess. <laughs> like, to me, it's always like, yeah, if you didn't dig it, you can say nothing. <laughs> That's an <laughs> I option. Have a,
0: one writer friend who will tell you that your book is a piece of shit. That They don't care. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and you know, some people are built that way, you know, they just are. They're like, but you know what? They do what? it in a way I,
0: where, like, you don't hate them, you're just like, All yeah, right.
1: yeah, yeah. And some people can pull it off. I know if I don't like something, I would never be able to pull it off in a constructive, helpful way,
0: I guess. I just, again, would be like, I didn't have time to read it, sorry,
1: yeah, yeah, sorry about it. Uh, just in you know what, if it uh, things just pile up,
0: exactly. Wow, I just want a poster of your book cover now. Like, I would totally hang that up.
1: That's so awesome to hear. I, I'm sure Cody will love to hear that, too.
0: <laughs> you guys should, like, actually sell it as a poster as well. And, oh, my God, and then, like, a cool soundtrack, like, right next to it. That'd be badass.
1: That would be badass. And and Cody's uh, Cody's doing some really cool stuff. You know, uh, Outcast Press as well has been very supportive of Anxiety, and Anxiety's been very supportive of outcast. so there's now like this little thing where you know both presses are sort of uh helping each other out and doing i think there's gonna be like readings in the future so I'm, I'm i'm very excited about uh about that and very excited that it's a midwest press as well and you know kind of keeping everything keeping everything here at home i guess
0: yeah i dig that i dig that is there anything else you want to tell us about Breaknet before we go
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it's coming out on uh, the 28th of of this month. So April 28th, Uh, you know, if you dig sort of postmodern, nonlinear literary fiction that marries horror noir and political satire, then this book will be for you. And all 12 of us can get together and, you know, drink a beer in a bar about it sometime.
0: All right. That was Scott Mitchell May. Support him by snagging a copy of his book off of Amazon or better yet, his website, com, where you can also find more of his work. Stalk him on Twitter at may, and be sure to check the show notes for all the links and spellings. As always, please check out our Twitter, at PodHealing, and take a look at our website, textualpodcast.com. Show us support by going on to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star review or subscribe or rate us on Spotify. We'll be back next Saturday with a full length interview with Matthew Binder. This is Mallory Smart. Thanks for listening to the show.